The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. So did you have uh, a decent horse in the cup sweep? And in fact, can I ask, do you care about the cup? I absolutely care about the cup. I love horse racing. Oh, you do? Yes, wow. I do. And on my other podcast, Alan, uh, Chanticleer podcast, I tip the winner of the cup. So obviously you didn't listen and uh, didn't make your fortune on, on uh, you're probably worried about interest rates or something like that. Now, I've been a bit busy this week, so I haven't got around to listening to your <laughs> sonically columnist shameless plug. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was. I, I do love I do love the Melbourne Cup, and it was quite a spectacle. All the horses made it around safely, so. That's good. Did you go to the track? I didn't go to the track. No, no. I went on Saturday, but uh, I, I worked on I worked on Tuesday, more focused on the RBA. Um, now, listen. Uh, obviously, the other thing that happened on Cup Day was a rate hike, and uh, we've got a lot of questions on that. So why don't we just leave our sure. comments on the rate hike to the questions? Yep. So we can yep. kill two birds with one stone and start with the Optus outage. The Optus outage, oh, man. which. I mean, I was very interested. Your first column on that subject, you absolutely got stuck into them. It was a ferocious column, mm. uh, if I may say, James. And then your second column, after you spoke to the CEO of Optus, whose name I can't remember. Kelly Bayer Rosmarin. Yep. After you spoke to her, you were a bit softer. You kind I was of, a little you, bit you softer. Had, you were yeah. a little bit softer because you, sp- you spoke to her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. It, it was extraordinary morning. I, I haven't seen anything like that. Like... It, it, it was um, – Optus obviously went through this big hack last year. You would think they'd be so sensitive to any sort of crisis. And there you've got the communications minister, the federal communications minister, going on multiple radio stations, I think two or three or four, to say, I haven't heard from the CEO. Opt, I, I, we don't know what's going on. We're trying to get information out of Optus. I was so just – and it was an appalling look, an sure. appalling look. Um, and, 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 and so, what was her expl- What was the CEO's explanation for not well, telling anybody, or at least not telling the minister? Th- at least this is why I don't think my my later column was actually that soft, because the explanation out of out of Kelly Byer Rosmarin's own mouth was, we didn't. The, the message was, we don't know what's going on. We're trying to fix it. Now that's not very satisfying, but our communications wasn't bad. It's just that everybody didn't like the message. And I think that is an extraordinary thing to say. No, but she should have rung up the minister and told her, we don't know what's going on. She should have gone on radio uh, to tell everybody, look, we get it, you're angry, we don't know what's going on, we're working on it. I mean, there is something to be said by the CEO or a spokesperson or a senior executive fronting up and fronting up and fronting. It reassures people. And Optus is a company that needs people's confidence. So listen, is is Gladys Berejiklian still working there? Somewhere, yep. So yes, what, she is. why isn't she telling the CEO what to do? 
Honestly, well, she, she's she's she she works under the CEO. Yeah, I know, but no, I don't mean she should boss her around. But I'm not sure. You know, I, like I, I, I thought it was the a, CEO would say, Gladys, what'll I do? I thought it was a pretty abject failure of communications yesterday. Yeah. So, not um, to mention a failure of, of the ne- technology. Look, ne- network outages are going to happen. I mean, this was the other point I made in that first column. It reminds you this is a small island, and most industries have one or two or three competitors. And so you need scale and you end up running really big networks and when something goes on wrong, the ramifications are huge. I can cop that, but you've got to front up. It's a real, it, was a, it was also a real reminder of how vulnerable we are oh. to oh. networks and oh, you know, how God. reliant we are on this. I mean, you know, Melbourne's trains stopped going because they can't communicate with the drivers. You, you, you th- you, there's all these second and third order effects. I mean, there was a great thing in the Batuta Advocate, uh, you know, the satirical online newspaper that said, you know, man who got gets home, got home at 5am after the Melbourne Cup strikes at Lucky, the trains are out and he's got Optus Wi-Fi, you know, go back to bed. So <laughs> there'd be some people pretty happy about it. But you do think about these second and third order effects or, or you don't think about them. You know, you don't think, hey, the hospital's phone lines are down. There might be a doctor who needs to call up and say, I've just found this on an X-ray. So, so I read in the Financial Review that um, the Sing- Singapore Telecom board was in town. Mm. So, man, your timing can be bad, can't it? Is is uh, is Kelly's is Kelly going to keep her job? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think that was the focus. That wasn't the focus yesterday. But she's had a rough couple of years. Um, look, I don't know if it's anyone. If this outage is anyone's fault. No, no, but the but the communication failures yeah, the that you point to yeah. are definitely somebody's fault. Yeah, look, I mean, Optus says they'll be extracting the learnings, or uh, the, learnings. the the root cause, the, the root cause uh, learnings. So, um, yeah, we wait with bated breath for those. Yeah, um, and uh, just before we get into the questions, you want to talk about bank profits? Yeah, look, I mean, it's bank profit week. We've had Westpac on Monday. Nabs are coming out as we speak. The story is not that surprising in a way. Uh, strong first half, so the bank's first half ends in March, and then the second half has been a lot tougher. They're seeing higher costs come through, um, wage inflation in their own businesses, and wage inflation in third-party suppliers. So if you imagine you're a bank, you've got all these tech deals, consultants, they're all, they're all facing higher wages. They're all pushing their prices up. So the banks are sort of getting hit by this inflationary wave so um i think the other thing with banks is i've got this sort of unified theory of banking which i won't bore you too much with but 72 just a little bit 72 (laughs) percent of bank of mortgages are sold by brokers 72 percent so the banks have essentially lost control of the distribution of their most important product it has been completely commoditized all that anyone cares about when they go to a broker is price first and then how quickly can you get me a approval or not. So to me, banks are in sort of a long-term decline. I wrote about this in the paper the other week. Banks' earnings peaked in 2016. It's never going to be better than it was back then. And so they're in this tough, tough game where they've got to manage their returns and manage this wave of expenses. Uh, the big four will be fine. Their profit pools are huge, whatever. I'd hate to be a small regional bank at the moment. It is hard yards. And, it will, and I can't see it 
ever not being hard yards. I've got a, just on bank profits, I've got a piece uh, going on the ABC News on Sunday, which I'll be recording later today, uh, just pointing out what happens when the RBA c- increases the cash rate. Because um, th- there are two things that happen. Yeah. Uh, the, cash, the cash rate that it increases is actually the rate at which the Reserve Bank lends to the banks overnight. Yep. Uh, because the banks have to square their books each day, and if they're if they're down, they have to borrow off the RBA, and the rate for that is the cash rate, and that went up by two, you know, point two five percent on Tuesday. The other thing that happens is that the the rate that the banks pay the banks, the rate that the Reserve Bank pays the banks in interest on their deposits with the Reserve Bank, which yep. are called exchange settlement accounts, mm. goes up. By the same amount, um, and the interest on the exchange settlement accounts is 0.1 percent above the cash rate. Right. Okay. Always. Yep. Right. And so, before Tuesday, it was 4.2 percent, and it's now 4.45 percent. Yep. Um, at the moment, so usually the exchange settlement balance is around 25 billion dollars. Yes. 30 billion. Currently, 362 billion dollars, mm. because of all the money that the, the RBA gave to the banks during the pandemic, yep. buying bonds off them, yep. right? And the, it wasn't really needed. So what the banks have done is just deposited back with the RBA. Right. And, and earning and, that little bit of extra interest. And because there's so much money around, they don't need to borrow from the Reserve Bank overnight at all. Right. 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 So the cash rate increase, any cash rate increase at the moment, represents a massive windfall to the banks. Right. Because all it does is increase the interest they're getting on their colossal <laughs> exchange settlement accounts yeah, okay. at the RBA. There you go. And it doesn't cost them a thing. Right. Well, that'll help their margins a little, I guess. <laughs> I reckon the biggest question I've, I've got about banks is cast your mind forward to when the RBA eventually cuts rates. Yeah. The best thing the banks could do to restore their margins that have been smashed by competition is to not pass on the full cut. And and let me tell you, this is being actively considered inside banking circles. Everyone is speculating that that's a, that would be a reasonable approach and everyone's thinking, who's going to be dumb enough to do it? Who's going to be, take the political heat to do it? So I reckon that's a really interesting well, thing as to you, watch. And as you point out, they don't control the distribution, so it's price that matters. Yeah, it is price that matters. But I can tell you, if one one bank decided that instead of passing on a full 25 basis point cut, they'd pass on 15 or 10, everyone would follow. It would be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to restore margins. But it might be a once-in-a-generation opportunity for smaller banks to take market share off them. Maybe, but the smaller banks have got other issues, including the tide of uh, regulatory uh, and compliance spending. Before we go to questions, James, uh, here's a quick word from our sponsor. InvestSmart's Professionally Managed Accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Okay, first question from Sarah. I've seen a lot of articles about how to ask your bank for a better interest rate. 
on loans, as another rate rise seems to be on the way, and as someone with no mortgage, is it equally possible to ask my bank for a better interest rate higher on my term deposit or saving account? Why the heck not? Sure. Yeah. Shop around. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this was something that Phil Lowe was very fond of saying. There is always around 40 basis points, 0.4%. Uh, available for people who shop around, but they'll get both a better home loan deal and a better deposit deal, but you just got to be prepared to do the work. Elliot says, why is there a race to get inflation under control? As long as it's going in the right direction, isn't that enough? Uh, well, so uh, the, the Reserve Bank has become a kind of um, uh, spreadsheet robot, as I put it in my... <laughs> in my uh, column in the New Daily tomorrow morning because uh, what they do is each quarter they compare their forecast for quarterly CPI, mm. trimmed mean, yes, uh, with the result and they react accordingly. So uh, their forecast for September quarter trimmed mean CPI was one point, it was 0.9% and it came in at 0.1.3%, uh, therefore up go interest rates. Yeah. And what you've seen every time this year, um, when uh, rates, when the quarterly CPI was below their forecast, they held, which was um, for the June quarter. Uh, and for the December and March quarters, it was above their forecast, so they hiked. So um, it's kind of, you know, it's not a, actually a, a philosophical discussion. It's actually just... Uh, it's it's kind of just arithmetic, yeah. And you might disagree with that. I do disagree with that. <laughs> I think it. I think there is a bit of feel opinion about this that they're thinking about what what the, the reason they they need inflation to come down by a certain point rather than just being in the right direction is because they don't want people's inflation expectations to become unanchored, as they call it. So they don't want people to be walking around going, oh prices are always going to go up, so therefore I need more pay, so therefore I need to put my own prices up. They don't want people getting used to this idea that everything goes up all the time. And I reckon that is a growing – that would have to be a growing concern for the RBA. They said on Tuesday that medium-term inflation expectations are anchored. I don't reckon short-term inflation expectations are anchored. I reckon you could talk to anyone and you say – what do you reckon is going to ha- uh, happen to the price of X? They would say, oh, yeah, it'll be up next year. I, I, I just I – reckon, I reckon this is w- – what they fear is what's starting to happen, that everybody expects everything – the price of everything is going up. And I think that's why – that's part of the reason. There's a few reasons why they raise rates on Tuesday, but that's part of it. Uh, Luke says, so the IMF has urged governments to slow down their big bills as ambitious state and federal uh, – Australian governments, actually – uh, as ambitious state and federal road and rail projects were flagged as factors that could force the up, RBA to lift rates even higher. As I've read in the paper today, these projects are ideally designed to make our lives collectively better. The whole point of fiscal and monetary policy is to make the economy and the essential aim of eventually making everyone lives, everyone's lives better on average over the long term. So wouldn't slowing these things down or axing them be A, against what the economic policy is essentially there for and B, a colossal waste of money? We need productivity, not more started and scrapped projects, surely. This is a great question, I reckon. Luke's exactly right. We need more productivity. The RBA bangs on about that all the time. But the IMF's also right. 
as as David Bassanasi said from BetaShares this week, state and federal governments have massive infrastructure programs going on. It is not only pushing up the price of labour and raw materials, but it's crowding out other stuff. The reason that it's so hard to build a house at the moment is because there's so many people and resources going into these infrastructure projects. Yeah, so so the thing is that um, inflation is really about is the is the imbalance between supply and demand, and yeah. it's not just about demand, which is what the RBA tries to control. It's about the capacity of the economy to supply. And the problem with the problem the IMF, IMF is identifying is that the the, um, the economy, the capacity of the economy to supply all these infrastructure projects is not there. Yeah, yeah. Just, it just isn't enough capacity to build them. And more than that, I mean, Westpac CEO Peter King this this week, he sort of referred to what I've called as the four horsemen of inflation. So you've got infrastructure, you've got housing, we need to do more there, the energy transition, we need to spend billions there, and then you've got immigration under, underpinning it all. So you've got these four forces that are going to keep demand very strong for the next 10 years. There's not much the RBA can do about it except try and take a bit of heat out of other parts of the economy. And so they're whacking householders. Uh, Rye says, why are there so many sensational reports or talks about RBA rate hikes to curve inflation when they are just doing what they are supposed to do? Is it even news? On the contrary, there is no, not much discussion on government fiscal policy to tackle inflation to help Australia's cost of living crisis. Well, I think that goes to infrastructure and immigration, uh, Rye. Um, is there anything else the government could do, Alan? Oh, and then there's subsidies, like childcare and stuff, which are helpful. yeah, but that but that goes against what the RBA is trying to do. I mean, uh, I mean, Warwick McKibben, the former RBA director, was quoted in a Fin Review yesterday saying that um, look, it's probably the subsidies probably aren't adding much to inflation, but yeah. they're certainly not um, helping reduce demand. Yeah. Um, and so he's saying that the government needs to cut spending or increase taxes. Well, they're not going to do that. Yeah. That's the problem. I mean... You can feel the political bind that the Albanese government can feel itself getting into, can't you? You can I know. see that this cost of living crunch is going to decide the next election. Sure. I mean... Well, and the problem is that, you know, it gets back to what the government's always do, which is that they're great handing money out, yeah. which they did in the pandemic... And in fact, handed out too much, which led to a, a burst of demand. Um, but they can't take it away. Yeah. That, yeah. And so, you know, it's got. It's only the Reserve Bank that can take it away. Well said. Ian said, just listen to last week's podcast. When will the Cola on Cola show come to Brisbane, or maybe a podcast special online? Well, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, is there a cafe in Brisbane? <laughs> God, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm told there is. <laughs> Maybe we need some nominations from Ian for the best cafe to go to and then we can take it on the road. Uh, Ian, just fly down. No, there's, there's, <laughs> there's three of us and one of you, right? So we'd have to all go to Brisbane at vast expense. Well. And we'd be well, we'd be happy to welcome you, Ian, into the into the Leclerc yeah. Cafe. Pretty uh, empty this morning, so there's plenty of room. Tom says, I've been considering buying stock in a second ETF and was wondering whether I should look outside Vanguard, who I've gone with for an ASX 200 ETF, as a way to diversify. Does this make any sense at all? Or do you think looking elsewhere would make little difference to the all eggs in one basket risk with investing? Oh, you should definitely diversify if, you, if you're going to... Yeah, I should... I mean, buying an ETF is, by definition, diversification. Yeah. 
Um, so you're paying you're paying Vanguard to do the diversifying for you, and that's fine. Um, what you're getting is in, an investment in all of the top ASX stocks according to the size of their market capitalization. Um, so uh, a way to diversify might be to buy a uh, to to invest in a global. ETF of some sort of foreign. You, you might want to diversify into other locations, either a global one from Vanguard or um, a global uh, one from someone else. Or a global one from someone else. I, I wouldn't exactly. worry too much about the diversification. If, if you like another Vanguard product, I wouldn't worry too much about having two Vanguard ETFs and, you, you know, whatever. You, that, that's not the diversification to worry about. It's more, are um, all my eggs in the Australian basket? Should I have some eggs in the global basket or... Uh, the other thing to remember is that um, the Australian market is dominated by uh, by banks and mining companies, and so you are by investing in a Vanguard ASX 200 ETF, you are overweight banks and miners. Um, so if you were going to diversify, you might want to get away from that. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Alan, you're going to ask the next question, and I must say there was a number of questions that came in on this subject. Andrew says, I love the podcast. I was listening to last week's episode and you had an email taking offence at the use of chairman. I'm sure Emeritus Professor Rowley Sussex will confirm the above as I listened to his ABC segment, A Word in Your Ear, once, where he explained that the term chairman is gender neutral. And he's got a couple of licks in the question which I can't actually read. I think the, uh, the response here is that the debate will roll on. Um, the Fin Review goes with chairman until we're told otherwise, so... There you go. Who's going to tell you otherwise? What are you talking well, about? If there's a if the if the person who is the chairman oh, specifically requests something different, but we find most uh, people, including female chairman, prefer the word chairman. But different personal preferences are. So, around. do you think it is gender gender neutral? Uh, we tend to use it as if as it is as if it is gender neutral. But I can understand the other view. I don't think it's a massive deal, but. There you go. I'm with the Emeritus Professor. Ian says, I'd like you to discuss two ideas that you've covered quite a bit on the last two episodes. Individually, they make perfect sense, but considered together, they seem counterintuitive. One is that the market is back where it was X and Y years ago. The other is that fund managers can't compete with index funds. If markets and indexes are going nowhere, why aren't stock picking fund managers the better bet? Or do investors need to pick their ETFs and avoid the vanilla S&P, ASX 200 ETFs? Good question. Yeah, it is. That's right. So it's, it's really only small fund managers that can make, um, uh, can make choices that are very different to the market uh, weightings of the companies. It's a big the, – the point – I think the point we've been making is that big fund managers like AFIC or Argo or Magellan uh, and so on can really – only follow the index because they've got so much money to invest, they have to invest in the big companies. Mm. They can't really pick little ones, yep. which are the ones that take off uh, and make, you know, give you a big difference in performance because they, you know, they just can't. Yeah. I mean, I think Ian's right. In theory, stock pickers should be able to beat the index, but in practice, it doesn't work like that because you've got to get the bets right and it's hard to get the bets right. Yeah. And so that's why only 30% of funds beat the index and that's not great odds. No. Phil says, just wondering if there's an opportunity for the government to create an independent body to monitor and manage superannuation policy and fight inflation instead of giving it to the banks. Also seeing that the government isn't really doing enough to help tackle the 
energy crisis, climate change, I'd love to see people be able to access a small percentage or amount of their own money, super, to install solar, buy electric cars, house batteries, whatever is needed. Could even be used as a form of stimulus. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I mean, just on the second part of it, uh, your super is to fund your retirement. You know, that's a different thing. I, I think we need to keep things in their own bucket. Yep. You know? Yeah. Um, this will be a debate at the next election. You can guarantee it. What? But people are struggling to get into the housing market. It, the Liberal Party will likely come back. that will reheat the policy of tapping super to fund your purchase of your house. And it will – this debate will kick off again. What is super for? What is super for? If I can't get into a house now, what's the use of getting a big whack of money when I'm 75? I mean, there's a good question, but we need super to work. The intergenerational report shows that if super works, the number of people on the full age pension halves, eventually halves. So we need it to work. (laughs) So if you want to keep chipping away at it, there's consequences to that. The other thing is, I think Phil's talking about using the percentage going into super as a way to speed up and slow the economy. Yes, uh, and a lot of people suggest that sort of thing, or increasing or reducing GST, or, yeah. uh, other kind of other method, other fiscal policy. And as we've been saying, governments are fine at uh, you know giving people money, cutting the cutting taxes. Um, they're they're hopeless at increasing taxes yeah. or taking money away. To, to, to Phil's point, though, if you if you did create an independent body to monitor and manage superannuation policy, that independent body's stock standard answer to any suggestion should be nope of no, course not doing that no, not what right. super's for so uh, I mean, uh, yeah so of course that's right you can't have these pet projects that like fills solar by electric cars yeah that's all cool but not the point uh, Yolanda says is the current ongoing inflation not so much a result of spending on consumer goods but rather due to higher housing costs electricity and petrol i.e. things beyond our control if so how will more rate hikes help reduced inflation at all? And if not, and the point of hiking rates is to slow inflation through minimising discretionary spending, how much each do we have to stop spending, say, per week to persuade the RBA that we've hiked enough? Alan, I think you could take a 25% spending cut per week. You reckon? That would convince Michelle Bullock. No, I'm being facetious. No, well... um, It it is a good point. Yes. Well, this comes back to the, the idea that the RBA doesn't have... It's got one tool, not, and, and that tool is a hammer rather than a Swiss army knife. So it cannot go in and say, ooh, we'd just like to pull back on spending in that area and that area and leave that one alone. It doesn't work like that. No. They have to stop you going to the restaurant so you can afford the groceries. That, that's, that's how it works. That's right. It's pretty blunt. It's not really pleasant. And I think it's going to get a lot more unpleasant for... The, house, the households that are feeling it. I mean, the RBA made this point on Tuesday and David Bassanasi, I'll refer to him again, he, he made this point really well. The irony here is that there's a group of households that are doing really well at the moment. They continue to spend and they continue to do all the discretionary stuff Yolanda points to. There's a group of households who can't do that. And when the RBA raises rates, they whack the people who can't spend and they make life better for the people who are spending. That's right. It's pretty rough. Well, the other thing to point out is that a lot of people say, oh, you know, the, the, the inflation is caused by X price or fuel prices or this price or that price, yeah. which the RBA doesn't control. 
and putting up interest rates does nothing about pet- petrol prices, right? Well, that's right. In fact, the RBA controls no prices except the price of credit. Yeah. That's it. And so p- pick a price. The RBA doesn't, RBA doesn't control it. Doesn't, you know, it's, it's not about whether the RBA controls price. All the RBA can do is to increase the price of the only thing, the only price that's not in the CPI. Yeah, yeah. Which, which yeah. is interest rates. And uh, thereby uh, whack, as uh, James says, all the people who are already doing it tough. Yeah. And, but they are trying to I – mean, fuel, fuel price is a great example. They can't control a fuel price, but they are trying to moderate your behaviour around fuel usage. Yeah, that's They're right. trying to say, exactly. don't take that extra drive. Use the train instead of the car. Find the cheaper option. That's, that's, yeah. that's what they're trying to do. Exactly. Last one, Greg. How are we going for time? Last question. Uh, you, Peter you says, a question, a question I have is if we are looking at limits of negative gearing – franking credits and the taxation of superannuation, shouldn't we also look at salary sacrificing? Why should some people be able to pay for their lifestyle costs with pre-tax dollars? Clearly there is not much benefit for those on low wages who have little or no spare cash from their wage. Is it because public servants use this extensively and are therefore not likely to raise this with politicians? Isn't that the role of free media to highlight an issue like this? Should it be limited or stopped in the interests of consistency? I have no idea, but it's a really interesting idea. I mean, it does – it is a tax break, isn't it? Sure. Probably fairly limited. I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't do any salary, salary sacrificing myself. And nor, I, don't, nor I. I don't know what you're allowed to salary sacrifice. So maybe our listeners could write in and tell us. Yeah, obviously car leases is the big one, isn't it? Yeah. That's always been the traditional one. There are some other things you can salary sacrifice. I think you can take – well, I think in some uh, instances you can take union fees and stuff like that out, pre-tax salary. So there are some things, but um, it's a really good point. I mean, it's probably a little marginal and perhaps Peter's point about uh, public servants is is a good is well made, but um, every little bit helps. Yep. Jim Chalmers is looking for savings, Alan. And that, everyone, was our little bit that helps, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. So if you've got a question, send it to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. I'll see you, James, in a fortnight. Great. And until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. 